uh, reading uh, verse 1 to verse 53. Uh, so an extended reading, but uh, it is the word of the Lord, and let's give due reverence and attention to uh, God's holy word. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives to come into the land that I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into his country in which you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they shall be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God, and after that they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. And yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt and there passed away he and our fathers. And from there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants until they would not survive. And it was at that time that Moses was born. And he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and he was a man of power in word and deed. But when he was approaching the age of 40 and entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel, and when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, 
Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled, became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. And when Moses saw it, he began to marvel at the sight. And he approached to look more closely. And there came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place of which you are standing is holy ground. And I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to deliver them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom you disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. And this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him in Mount Sinai. And he was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. And our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. And at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Romfa, the images which you made to worship them. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses and directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. And David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and circumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, history uh, is the repetition of 
uh, spiritual failure, regardless of the country, ethnicity. It's just simply the continual repetition of spiritual failure. Salvation history is the way of escape in God's provision of Jesus Christ. And this essentially is the trial before us. Uh, the context, again, is most important. You recognize uh, he is in a courtroom. Uh, he is in a trial for his life. Uh, he will give a sterling defense of the history of the failure of people everywhere. Uh, and it will cost him his life. Uh, the uh, particular history that Stephen brings is, of course, uh, Israel's failure in four great epics. Uh, but I will tell you, uh, it could apply to any nation, uh, to any of the seven continents. Uh, men fail. That is what they are spiritually. And there's only escape in Jesus Christ. Uh, this is, of course, a historical survey and one that is uh, full of subtleties and irony uh, in which ultimately the charges will convict his accusers. Uh, I would uh, sum it up in simply two ethnicities, Jew and Gentile. Uh, and Stephen will condemn us all. The Scriptures condemn us all. But again, there is hope in Christ. Uh, we begin in verses 2-16 to when Stephen defends himself from the patriarchal period. Uh, it begins with Abraham and a display of high regard for Abraham's calling from God and the covenant of circumcision. Uh, but the patriarchs uh, became jealous of Joseph and sold him into slavery. Always jealousy, if they're not, in our hearts, condemns us all. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his tribulations, verse 10. Uh, you and I jo know Joseph as a type of Christ, uh, the greater protector who sets the stage for Moses uh, and rescues him from Egypt. Great reminder of the patriarchal period in uh, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells his church, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. I know that there's a great deal to do in some evangelical circles about recovering ethnic Israel, but that is really gone, the coming of Jesus Christ. It is those who have faith in Christ who are the sons of Abraham. And so Jesus Christ has inaugurated a new and greater Israel, uh, not in the cutting of the flesh, but in the cutting of the heart, uh, which only He can do, and which He does in grace uh, as He saves His people. Again, it's not the sign, it's what's signified by the sign, namely the grace of God. The grace of God. And that God will always save His own, and none will be lost. The defense now turns to the Mosaic period in verses 17 to 45. The name Moses is from the Hebrew verb to draw. To draw, in this case, out of water. Which is parallel, I think, to 
Jesus coming out of the waters of baptism and the descent of the Holy Spirit as He begins His movement to Jerusalem and the crucifixion where He will redeem His people. He was drawn for us to redeem us in the great event of the cross. It's a great picture of another baptism which is uh, very important to all of us in our contemporary culture. It's the baptism found in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, we read in uh, this last book of uh, the Bible a parallel event spiritually to the spiritual and physical event of uh, the baptism of Israel in the Red Sea. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, uh, verse 15. And the serpent poured water out like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. This great flood represents to me uh, modern day deception in the church in which the forces of evil try to sweep the church away with incredible deception and false teachers. And Satan, of course, is more powerful than, uh, than any of us. How can we, how can we survive uh, such a malevolent baptism in the deception of false teachers in our contemporary culture? Well, of course, the grace of God who always rescues His own. Uh, look at... Uh, uh, verse 16, And the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of its mouth. That's how we're rescued from deception. Uh, the parallel to the uh, division of the waters in the Red Sea. And so God protects His own and He creates for us a spiritual land bridge from the flood of false teaching. And if you will, that bridge is Christ. He protects us. He keeps us and preserves us so that we will cross over to the other end. Uh, world without end. But like Moses, Jesus was the object of a killer of babies. And God rescued them both and they go on to become deliverers in the Exodus. Jesus is obviously the greater Moses who saves from the slavery of sin and who inaugurates uh, greater exodus. An exodus to which if you know the Savior Christ, uh, you are a participant in the greatest exodus of all time, moving from the city of destruction to the city of the glory of our God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In uh, Moses, verse 37, uh, foretold that God would raise up a greater prophet and uh, certainly written of in Deuteronomy 18.15. And Moses says in Deuteronomy of the resurrection of this greater prophet, uh, you shall listen to him. Jesus is that prophet. Uh, if you go back to Acts chapter 3 and verse 30, pardon me, verse 22, uh, Luke has the fulfillment of that uh, being uh, in, in Jesus. And Moses said, The Lord shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And that prophet is Christ. The great prophet. Christ. 
But the forefathers were unwilling to be obedient to Moses, or for that matter, to be obedient to Jesus in our present day. They never really left Egypt, did they? Their hearts never left. Physically they left, but their hearts were still with the gods of Egypt. And Moses uh, makes this evident in the wilderness experience. Their hearts betray a false loyalty when they ask Aaron to make a golden calf to replace God and Moses. And they rejoiced in the idol. But it's more than an idol. It's the demons behind the idol. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20 uh, says of the Gentiles when they go to their, uh, their idol feast, uh, the demons are there. And so of all the idolatry of our present culture, uh, it's not a stone obelisk somewhere, it's not some statue in a garden, it's not just greed, uh, it's the power of demonic forces to capture the heart and mind and to own it. And the only rescue is in Christ. It's very interesting that the Targum of Exodus 32, the account of the worship of the golden calf, reads, and Satan was dancing in the fire. Of all the false gods, of all the false religions of the world, it is Satan who is celebrating because he owns the worshipers. And there is only rescue by Christ. The idolatry is breathtaking as are the consequences. They took the tabernacle of Moloch and the star god, verse 43. Very interesting that the fuller account of this is in uh, the prophet Amos, chapter 5, and verse 26 and 27. If you have your Old Testament, the prophet Amos. It's not just a commentary on the wilderness experience, it's a commentary on our culture today. You also carried along Sekuth and your king and Kiyun, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. The context is God's rejection and disqualification of their worship because of their idolatry. Sekuth and Kuyun were astral deities. The Greek translation of the Old Testament reads, Molech, who was the god of the sky and the sun and the star of your god. More importantly, the text reads, which you made for yourselves. For your own self-interest, the point being. So we make gods to serve our own self-interest. And God removes them from the land in exile. The irony is that worship is much more than a place. It's in Christ. Uh, my favorite account of this is uh, Jesus speaking to the woman in John chapter 4. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. It's no longer a geographic place whatsoever. The lady says, well, I've I've heard of this coming Messiah. I've heard He's going to come. Jesus said to her, to her, I who speak to you am He. And in a moment, He sweeps away all geography. We don't have to take pilgrimages anymore. 
we go to Jesus, who rescues his people by his power. I love the text of Matthew chapter 12. Uh, if you have your New Testament, it's important perhaps to, uh, to turn there. Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to read uh, two verses in particular. Uh, verses 28 and 29. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's exactly what's occurring in Matthew. It's exactly what's occurring today. The kingdom has come through Christ. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? And so Christ invades the kingdom of Satan and plunders all his own and gathers them and carries them away. And if you've come to Christ in personal faith, it's because He came for you. Unleashed the bounds of the forces of Satan and carried you off to the grandeur and the beauty of His kingdom so that you belong to Him and to Him alone. Yet in the wilderness, God provided the tabernacle and gave them Joshua and the land. The subtlety is that Jesus is Joshua. An eternal life is the greater fulfillment of all the land promises. In my own theology, all of the land promises of the Old Testament are nothing more than a picture of eternity. A land of milk and honey. A land of incredible richness. A land in which God will be our everlasting peace. And there will no longer be any danger the ferocity of lions, the biting of serpents, because God in His power will make it all peace. That should be our hope, not geography. The analogy to the Gentiles, of course, comes from words like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. They worship the creature, not the Creator. But again, I would commend to you a more sinister reality. We have think, a way of thinking that uh, idol is some tangible th- figure. And sometimes it is that. It's much more sinister. Recall the words of the Apostle John, chapter 5, verse 21. Guard your hearts, he tells the church from idols. The context is overwhelming. The context is false teachings about Christ. So that every cult is a cult of idol worshipers. Anyone who traffics in false doctrines or theology about Jesus Christ has erected a false idol. And the Apostle Paul is telling the church, guard your heart from such. For they're like the, the rivers that will come out of the uh, the mouth of the dragon to sweep you away. And that's what we attempt to do here in the grace of God. Uh, idolatry is very present in uh, the life of uh, uh, John the Apostle, book of the Revelation. If you've ever read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and I'm sure you have, uh, you read seven times a reminder about idolatry. In the words, he who has an ear, 
let him hear. It means that they are compromising their faith and their spiritual ears are being transformed. And John is saying, wake up. Wake up and, and repent and do the, the things that you used to do. Put away the false teachers. Repent of compromising because it's transforming your ears and becoming hardened so that you will not respond properly. Incredible pastoral reminder from the Apostle John of the danger of idolatry in the life of the church. False worship. It's a sinister danger because it changes the heart and the eyes and the ears and our spiritual sensory organs that are so desperately needed to apprehend the gospel. Tangible expression of idolatry I experienced a couple of months ago. I went to a funeral in a Catholic church, and in the foyer there were all these dolls. What's with all these dolls? Well, I, I knew they weren't dolls, they were caricatures of Mary. Just everywhere, just got this chilling feeling. It's kind of sinister. You, this, this is. This is dangerous ground. I, I respect Mary as, as the disciple of Jesus Christ. But she is no mediator. Except in the Catholic Church. To me, it's a very sinister form of idolatry. Mary is a mediator. I remember once here in our church grounds, I was showing a lady who used to attend here when this was the Catholic Church, and uh, she was wondering about our statue of Mary, and I had to tell her, well, Joan, in our faith, uh, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. And she quickly responded with her own faith. No, you get to the Father through the mother. Had a sinister, sinister feeling in my heart. There was a woman that did not understand the majesty of Christ. The defense uh, turns to the monarchical period in verses 46 to 50. Solomon built a temple. The irony is that God is not confined to their temple. The citation here is most important. Uh, if you look at verse 49, uh, comes from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. The context of Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2 is the end-time temple of the new creation that embraces the humble and excludes the false. It's not a building. And so God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? And God doesn't live in temples built by hands. And by the way, that's a subtle acknowledgement of idolatry. So, because of Christ, He inaugurates the end-time temple. And we worship at that end-time temple when we come to Him by faith, and believe in Him, and hope in Him. And we become priests in that temple, Peter tells us. John tells us. The Scriptures tell us. 
that the end time temple has begun and the last great priesthood is for all of those who know the Savior. We live in a culture awash in insignificance. You and I alone as the people of God possess the greatest significance of eternity. We're the priests of God. We belong in the winning side. And while the devil wants us back, he cannot get us. Everywhere in the Scriptures, book of Hebrews, great reminder in Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 11 of the significance of Jesus. When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Verse 24, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. He's our high priest. The hope is that Jesus is not a literal temple. And so that we can worship Him 24-7, irrespective of geographically wherever we are. In a prison in North Korea, or driving in our automobile because of faith in Christ. The great point of the monarchy is to point the history of Israel to Christ. Reminded of Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 24. And my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. A promise from the great prophet Ezekiel. You know who fulfills it? Christ does. Listen to his words. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. We come to Christ because the Father teaches us. And He writes the law on our hearts. Our hearts. And so we follow Him. It's the great and only shepherd of the sheep. The defense includes uh, with the present. Beginning in verse 51. Verse 53 closes with an indictment. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. The description is the end state of idolatry. Uh, he, uh, he says of them uh, that they are stiff-necked in verse 51 and uncircumcised of heart. And this comes, of course, from the language of the golden calf incident in Exodus. They become like the object of their worship or unresponsive to God. 
It's what idolatry does. It makes you unresponsive to God. Circumcision was a sign signifying a cutting of the heart. The old being cut away, but really the greater spiritual reality. Even Moses taught us that in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16 when he tells the people, circumcise your hearts. The heart, the heart, not the flesh, the heart. It means that they have become like their idols with uncut hearts. They have no hearts or ears and therefore resist the Holy Spirit. It's an echo of the calling of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And they have blasphemed Moses, the law, and the tabernacle. And like their forefathers, they have killed the prophets. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, great reminder in verse 37. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Man, what great hope there is for the Christians in China and North Korea. Maltreated, but God will care for them. God will rescue them. And none will be lost because of Christ. It is, it is the reminder uh, that every generation, every epoch of history, regardless of the continent in which you live, uh, is under the condemnation of idolatry. Uh, they will lose and uh, God will ultimately destroy them. And spiritually, God is destroying them now and transforming their eyes and their ears and their hearts. Let's, let's turn to uh, the beauty of God uh, in salvation history. I've given you human history. Our hope is salvation history. Human history is ugly. It's an ugly epic of death and destruction, of false gods and false promises and deception. If it were left to us, none of us would be saved. None. Paul's summary of the condemnation of Gentile and Jew is in Romans chapter 3. If you have a New Testament, you should, you should turn there. Romans chapter 3. We sometimes think that, well, I have a free will. I, I can find God on any time I want to. Uh, I love uh, the idolatry of so many millennials. Well, Bowersox, you have your way, but I've found God in my own way. It's all idolatry. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. And so the great curtain of condemnation comes down over every epoch and every continent of human history in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's all idolatry. And false gods cannot save. They can only destroy. But in salvation history, there's good news. It's the greatest of news. 
that God is gracious and saves. Very fond of the Apostles' words in Romans chapter 6 and in verse 23. Great reminder that God is a God of grace. He's going to save all of His own. And that's exactly the point that the Apostle Paul, having condemned everyone on every continent, in every age, and in every epoch, he brings to us the hope of the gospel, the God who saves. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The beginning of salvation history in, in the Savior. First, I want to remind you that God saves all of the elect from the Gentile nations. Paul has a commentary on this in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5. Ephesus is a Gentile church. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Even though we were sinners and idolaters, He elected us for adoption. Brings us into the family of God through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He then tells us how. Since I spoke of uh, idolatry, uh, let's, let's look at it in if you will, in Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12. And in Him, namely Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He cuts away the faults from our hearts. having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. In one, pardon me, three great verses, He tells us how God rescues us through Jesus Christ. He cuts the heart. He's resurrected from the dead and we are with Him in our union with Him in eternal solidarity. And the power of the flesh is forever conquered. And He forgives all of our transgressions. All of them. Not just some, all of them. It's the greatest promise of all times. In the words of Christ upon the cross, it is finished. He pays the penalty in full. He cancels the debt. What freedom we have in Christ. Hope. Characterized, I think, very beautifully in uh, uh, Prophet Ezekiel 36.26. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart. Put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove uh, the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's how He saves Gentiles. He rescues us from idolatry. He's going to do the same for all elect Jews. None will be lost. 
God saves from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that includes ethnic Jews. A great promise of the Gospel. Uh, Book of Romans, uh, chapter 11. Uh, Again, if you have your New Testament, you should turn there. Great promise because it speaks of the power of God. Because that's our only hope. We don't have any power whatsoever in ourselves. None. None whatsoever in ourselves. Many Christians sometimes think that, well, my free will saved me. My friend, if you participated in any way in your own salvation, you're lost. It's not a participatory event. It's God who saves. It's God who circumcises the heart. It's God who resurrects us and makes us alive. Romans chapter 11, great salvation. Uh, Verses 25 to 27. Uh, Paul is addressing this great question of ethnic Israel. Because of their idolatry, have, have they been lost? Because of their rejection of Messiah, is their doom uh, fatal and final? Paul says no, because of the grace of God. Context is the saving of a remnant. A remnant. Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they're not Israel who are descended from Israel. He's preaching about the remnant that God will save. The remnant of uh, Romans chapter 11 uh, and verse 4. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God kept them for Himself. And Paul quotes two passages. Uh, The first is uh, from Isaiah 59, uh, verses 20 and 21. Uh, and uh, in Romans chapter 11, he has the fulfillment of these great prophecies in the great Redeemer who is Christ. Specifically, their hardening is neither total nor final. Let's look at the text, Romans 11.25. For I do not want you, be, want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus, or in this way, all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The deliverer is Christ. How will the remnant be rescued by the deliverer Christ? How? In this way, by Christ who is the great redeemer. He's the only redeemer. He will rescue them. He will gather the remnant and none will be lost because he loses none who are given to him by the eternal Father. It's a statement of how or in the manner that they are saved. The Redeemer in the incarnation came to Zion. Pardon me. And the Spirit of Jesus goes out from heavenly Zion to remove transgression. And then I love the statement from Isaiah 27 verse 9. When I take away their sin. The greatest promise of all time. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you cannot take away your own sin. Idols won't do it. Going on a pilgrimage won't do it. Worshiping some false cult won't do it. Only Christ has the power. And what power He has when I take away their transgression. The great Redeemer. 
and respecting ethnic Israel. He's been doing it from the cross and will continue doing it until the second coming. But he will do it and he will save the remnant and plunder them all. And so, ladies and gentlemen, while human history is a sad spectacle of loss and ruin and death and destruction, salvation history is the grand sunlit plains of the light of Jesus Christ. The prophet and the priest and the king. He's the prophet because he fulfills all the Old Testament prophets. And he tells us the will of God and places it upon our hearts. He's the priest, the great high priest, who enters the more perfect tabernacle where only the high priest could go. But he is that high priest, and he goes there to represent us and to intercede for us and to make satisfaction for our sin by sacrificing himself as the high priest. And then he's the great king. He's a prophet, he's a priest, and he's a king. Because he's king, he can defeat all our enemies. He can plunder the satanic kingdom and carry us away. And because he's the great king, he will protect us. He is our surety all along our journey of the last exodus so that the forces of evil cannot get at us. Cannot. Because he is the greater one. And he rescues all his own. The prophet and the priest and the king. If you're a Christian... That's your salvation history in one person. Every epoch of your life overturned by one person, one great event, one great gift in the incarnation. Uh, if you're not, that's your only hope. To flee to Him. To sue for peace. Ask Him to save you. So history condemns all. Salvation history... God saves all his own, and none are lost.